This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us today for the third quarter's update on our Ned Group Investments Flexible Income Fund. My name's Doug Nickel, and I'm an investment analyst here on the Best of Breed team at Ned Group Investments. Today, I'm joined by Rashad Tayog. He's the portfolio manager at AVAX, and he's also the investment manager of the Flexible Income Fund. Over the next 30 minutes or so, Rashad's going to be taking us through the fund's performance over the quarter, and he's going to take us through some of his current thinking of the markets before running us through how he has positioned the fund. And then after this presentation, we'll allow some time for Q&A at the end. A few quick items to mention before we continue with proceedings. For those dialed in on Teams, there is a Q&A function on the right-hand side of your screen. So please do feel free to ask questions and I can put these to Rashad at the end. And without further ado, Rashad, please take us away. Morning, Doug. Thanks for that. Uh, morning, everybody. It's good to be able to, you know, uh, sit down with you post quarter end and talk about the fund and especially moving into a post pandemic world. Things have calmed down a little bit, but we're still not out of the water, both in terms of the pandemic as well as the longer term economic effects. Now, quarter three, we had a return of around 2%, which was, you know, above the cash return above the benchmark return of around 1% and above the peers. So a nice stable quarter compared to the ups and downs where we from Q1 was, we had a bit of a drawdown and then a strong recovery in Q2. This was a more normal quarter. And you can see that from the type of returns from the various asset classes in Q3. So the RAND depreciated slightly with a, and you got about a 2.2% return there. Inflation-linked bonds at about 1.2% or the government bonds at 1.4%. And, and this was above the cash return uh, of 0.9%, which is the Steffi call return. It's a little bit of a low number, but that is the new normal when rates are have been reduced quite significantly. So this type of quarterly return of about 0.9% in cash is going to be the kind of the, the, the new, new normal. And what we're going to have to try to do is generate returns above that at a reasonable level of a reasonably low level of risk. The asset classes which had negative performance, SA property and preference shares, SA property continues to be under pressure as it it is directly impacted by this post-pandemic uh, economy. You know, the, the issues there with retail and office are very significant. So if you look at the drivers of performance for, for our fund, you know, you had a gross return of about 2.2%. The big driver for that was the SA bond component. We've got 15% in nominal bonds and 15% in inflation-linked bonds, and that were the bigger driver of performance and especially our stock selection within those bonds. If you look at our holdings on the nominal side, holdings in the R186 and R2030 area, and then in the inflation-linked side, the I2025, those were the sweet spots to be in, and that's where our fund was positioned, and that was the key driver of returns. A little bit of a contribution from offshore 0.3%, SA cash 0.2, and then some of the detractors SA property and SA preference shares, we've got small positions there, 2% in each. But if you look at the significant drawdowns that these continue to experience, even in quarter three, as things have kind of have calmed down, they still were small detractors from the fund. But overall, a solid quarter 
And I think if we can continue to build on this going forward, I think we'll be doing a good job. Now, we're beginning to see the end of, you know, the depths of the pandemic. So that level of uncertainty has decreased, but we're definitely not out of the woods. Different sectors of the economy for property to tourism remain under severe pressure. And the, but the key thing is we're also left with the legacy of the pandemic, and that is a chronic debt problem. Now, coming up to 2019, our debt, we've got about, we had about three, 3.1 trillion rand of debt outstanding. And what I've graphed here is the change in debt on an annual basis. And you can see that it, we started in 2007, we actually managed to reduce debt. So this was before the financial crisis and post that we began to spend and we increased debt, you know, from we increased debt by 57 billion, 126 billion. And then as during the Zuma years, we were adding around 200 billion rands of debt every year. And then as this economy continued to struggle in 2018, 2019, we started to add 300, 400 billion rands of debt in any given year. And that in the, now in the pandemic, we've added, we set to add 820 billion rands of debt just in a single year. And that's going to get us close to 4 trillion rands. So we're going to go from 3.2 to 4 trillion just in a single year. And then that's going to continue to build up at a run rate of three or 400 uh, billion rand a year. So we've had a step change in debt. We've loaded a lot onto the system this year while revenues have for, uh, that's a function of the amount of spending that the government does and as well as the fact that revenues have fallen quite significantly. And we're going to have a huge challenge in order to service that debt. That's going to be highlighted when we, when we have the medium term budget next week on the 21st. And before that, President Ramaphosa is set to present an economic recovery plan. I think it'll be a lot of the normal things in terms of energy. Maybe we get something positive in terms of tourism, but it's going to be more of the same. And they're going to try and coordinate a bit more in order to try and you know save this, this economy from this a massive debt burden that we've experienced. Now, a lot of that debt has been financed, especially in the local bond market by hot money flows. So effectively portfolio flows into our bond market. We had about 40% of our, of our domestic bond market was held by foreigners. That's diminished over the last year or two and it's come down to around 30%. But portfolio flows were a big driver of how we were able to finance such a increasing debt burden. Unfortunately, that hasn't been financed by foreign direct investment, FDI, because foreigners have been unwilling to actually finance the you know, direct investment projects, which are the type you need to grow a sustained economy on a sustainable basis. You know, so no, and I think that's a reflection on, on the unwillingness of even locals to finance direct investment. So you're not seeing, you know, big investment into the resources sector. I don't know when the last Last time I heard, you know, a, a company was putting up a new factory in South Africa. So there's just been this unwillingness, given the domestic environment, the political uncertainty, there's just been an unwillingness to put investment into the ground, which is what we really need in order to get this economy growing. So we are in a bit of a quagmire and the pandemic has effectively put us into an even tougher situation than we were at the beginning of the year. Now, the RAND has been on a bit of a roller coaster, even more so than usual. And from the beginning of the year, we depreciated close to 37%. So we went from 14 up to 19 Rand to the dollar at the worst, which is a 37% depreciation in a very short space of time. It's one of the sharper moves we ever see, we've seen in the Rand history. 
and we've recovered somewhat back to the 1650 odd level. Now, if you look at that since the beginning of the year, 14 to 1650, it's quite a sharp move, but we, we did start the year on a very strong note. So we were sitting at 14 rand to the dollar, but if you take us back to 2019, a more normalized level, we're actually only about 14% weaker. So 14 to 1650 is only about 14% weaker on an annualized basis. That's only around 7.6%. So if you look at our performance relative to emerging markets, you can see that sharp move from 1.15 all the way to 1%. So we, we, we underperformed our emerging market peers by 15%, but we have since recovered by around 10%. So we've only underperformed by about 5% at the moment. So if I look at this, I think you know at these type of 1650 levels, it's time to add, start adding FX exposure. We think the RAND has been significantly strong. And if we do see another 5% recovery relative to peers, if you see the RAND going below 16, I think that's when you start adding significant amounts of XX, FX exposure. But we do think it is time to, to be adding and we have done that on the margin for the, for the fund. Now, this is a graph I showed at the end of last quarter. It shows you the SA 10-year bond yield compared to the repo rate. So you can see that light blue green line is the repo rate and we've cut rates very significantly from six and a half percent down to three and a half. You know, we at extremely low levels on the repo rate and we've had, you know, very aggressive Saab cuts. They left the, the rates unchanged at the last meeting, but we had another split vote. I think it, it was a 3-2 this meeting to remain on hold, and then the previous meeting was a 3-2 for a cut. So you can see that there is still the potential that you could see some easing going forward. But if you look at the bonds, uh, and here you've got the 10-year bond, you can see that's still at 960, 970. So you've got this massive gap which has opened up, a record gap, 6% gap between where the repo rate is and where the government is having to fund itself. So that gap is a function of the massive amount of issuance that the government has as, as needed in order to fund this massive 16% budget deficit. They've had to up the weekly auctions from around 3% to around, sorry, 3 billion rand a week to close to 8 billion rand a week. And with the non-com, sometimes they issue 13, 14 billion rand a week. This is a massive amount of cash which the government is sucking up. It's a massive amount of bonds which they need to issue. And that's why we've seen bonds continue to remain under pressure, even though the yield on the front end is extremely low. Now, the, the Saab has, has started doing QE. You can see that in April and May on the right hand side, I've got the, the increase in the, the Saab government bond holdings. They bought, you know, around 10, 20 billion Rand a month in those key months. That's when we had that rands, that spike in yields that you see here. But since then, they've really calmed down and they've bought, you know, two, two or three billion. And in the last month, they've bought less than a billion. So they, they haven't really launched massive amounts of quantitative easing of bond purchases in line with what global you know, central banks have done. But the question is whether they will be forced to do that because this gap between the front end rates and long bonds is untenable and they do need to provide some support to the fiscal. But I think they want to see some credibility from the treasury from Minister Mboweni before they, they provide that, that line of quantitative easing. This is a very interesting chart. It shows the government bond yield in light green 
as well as the five-year NCD, which is the level at which banks fund themselves. And I can I can show this chart for 20, 30 years, and the green line, sorry, the, the government, the light green line has consistently remained below where the bank NCD line, the bank's uh, NCD line is. And historically, banks always funded themselves at a premium to where the government is funding itself. The government can print money, therefore they always raise money. They were the risk-free rate. However, that crossed over recently, and you now have the surreal situation where the SA government is paying a higher rate to fund itself than SA banks. That's a function of SA banks not needing the money. There's very little demand for loan growth for loans, and the, the, the government being a massive borrower and issuing massive amounts of bonds in the market. So it's really a supply and demand issue. And you can now invest in government paper at a higher yield than bank paper, which really fundamentally shouldn't really, it shouldn't exist like that. Inflation in bonds, we talked about in the last two quarters how this was an attractive asset class. We had around five, four, five percent, you know, in Q1. We've increased that significantly to around close to 15%. So we saw a lot of value there. The yields have come down, so it has you know, added to performance, yields have come down to around four from around the 4% level to around the 3% level. But we do still think that 3% real yield, you, even if you add two, you know, a percent inflation, three plus one gives you four, that's where the cash rates are at the moment. You only need 1% inflation and you're already outperforming cash. So we still think on a risk return basis, inflation linkers offer value and we're happy with that allocation. And we think that as long as you get more, more than 1% inflation, which we think is likely, you will see uh, cash plus returns from inflation linkers. And we've we've been in the our weighted average term there is around two and a half years. We haven't gone into the 20 or 30 years. We focused on the short end and pre and with the I-2025, we're buying, you know, sub 4% linkers. And we think that that risk return is, is, is very attractive. So where are we on portfolio positioning? As we've been saying, this fund strategy has been diversified alpha. We've wanted to buy a, a broad range of fixed income assets and strategies to generate returns. And we were never about putting all our eggs in one basket. We wanted a diversified portfolio in order to get a cash plus return with a low level of downside risk. Nothing has changed with this pandemic. But in fact, I think this has highlighted the even greater importance of diversification. Diversification was critical, but now you know it's it's even more critical. And the mix between floating rates at 33%, fixed rate bonds 14.5. We've got an equal amount of inflation-linked bonds, also 14.5. We've been adding some convertible bonds, a bit of preference shares, you know, a bit of SA property at around 2% each offshore bonds and SA money market around 12, 12.5%. The, the diversification between all of these asset classes, which can deliver a cash plus return, but mixing them together and making sure there's not a significant downside risk, that is always been our strategy and that is what we're going to continue to do. As I mentioned, we have increased the allocation to inflation in bonds. We do think that it's a great risk return opportunity and we've now got an equal mix of inflation link and you know nominal bonds. We've taken advantage of some convertible opportunities. We're begin, beginning to add a little bit there. And if you look at the estimated return, it has fallen a bit, but that is a function of how the front end yields have fallen 6.1%. It is still significantly when you when your JIBA, when your repo rate is 3.5, your JIBA rate is 3.3, you know, your 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 core money market holding yields have diminished. So we are looking for a mix of asset classes which can outperform that that cash return. 
In terms of a duration, we've got 1.37. One, uh, one, one uh, duration of that is from the local, and it's split almost equally between nominal duration, real duration at around 0.45 each. And then we've got about off 0.37, which is coming from an offshore duration. And that's from a lot of our, our increase in offshore assets. We've increased the allocation to TIPS, which is a US inflation linked assets. We've increased that significantly from around the 1% level to about a 3.5% level. And as I mentioned, it is a good time to be increasing your currency exposure. So as the RAND has come to down to the 16 and a half level, and even below, we were down at about 16.10, 16.20 two weeks ago, we've increased the net offshore exposure from about the 4% to about a 6.5% level. And if the RAND continues to strengthen, we'd increase that closer to our maximum of around 10%. So overall, as I mentioned, flexible income means diversification in order to generate a cash plus return with a low level of downside risk. I think given the low cash rates, returns will be a bit lower than they, they were historically, but we will be using these various different asset classes in order to generate a cash plus return as we as we have uh, historically. So I'll end the, the presentation there and we can move on to questions if they are coming through. Doug. Thanks, Rashad. Yeah, it's great when you look at some of, you know, if you look at the returns over the last six months, I think it's one of the highest six month returns that we've had in the fund. So it's good to see that the fund has bounced back. And I do think that that is testament to the quality of, of the assets that are in the portfolio, but also to the way that you managed the fund during that crisis and maintained a lot of your positioning. The, there was one slide there that I thought was really interesting, which was a slide on, the, on South Africa's QE and the current, I guess, the steepness of the yield curve. When I was, uh, there, there was a really good IMF report that came out recently, which showed the different levels of QE that have taken place amongst EMs. And South Africa is actually down at the bottom and, and are a lot lower than, than the likes of Brazil. Do you see the Saab coming in and being a little bit more aggressive in that buying strategy? And you know, is, is there potential for a, for a rally at the long end? Or do you just think that the structural issues in our in in our current in in our country are just too significant at this point to warrant um, that type of movement? So I, I do think that there is a potential for the Saab to come in because you cannot have a situation where your front end rates are three and a half percent, your repo is set at three and a half, and the government is borrowing at nine and a half percent. There is no, the, the transmission of low rates into the economy is just broken. So if you think about it, a three and a half percent repo rate means that prime is at 7%. So what is the incentive for banks to go out and lend at seven prime, prime even prime plus one, 8% when they can go buy a risk-free government bond at nine and a half percent? So the transmission of low rates into the economy is not happening because of the steepness of the yield curve. And as you mentioned, we have our QE has been minimal. Our, our Saab only owns around 60 billion rands worth of bonds. Other emerging markets have done a lot more. Brazil, Indonesia and developed markets have done ridiculous amounts. I mean, they've bought 30 odd percent of, of the entire bond issue. So if you think about where we are, four trillion rand, 30%, that means our Saab should own over 1 trillion 
of government bonds in order to be in line with what the US, UK, the Europe has done. So we've only, we, when they've got 60 billion, but in theory they could bought, have bought a trillion. And I think at some point they do need to get involved, but the question is, what is the right time? The problem is we've got a government which we're spending is out of control. And it's been like that for the last few years. I think the core uh, the core message of from, that we've delivered over the last few years to investors is that the fiscal issues are really serious. And that was even before COVID. So we we think that the Saab doesn't necessarily want to launch QE while unless those fiscal issues have been fixed because they don't want to give the, the government a blank check to go and say, OK, fine, civil servants will give you 5% every year. We'll just be throwing, you know, let's just let them continue to splurge and throw money and waste money. SAA, you need 20 billion. Okay, Saab, please print 20 billion. We're going to hand it to SAA. I think they do not want to encourage that behavior. If you look at the Saab governor, he's a very conventional, the Sechikanakhi is traditional and conventional, and he doesn't want to facilitate a government whose spending is out of control. So I do think they need to get involved at some point, but I think they want to see some level of credibility from the fiscus before they do that. Otherwise, they're essentially just throwing money down the drain. Brilliant. Rashad, we've got a lot of questions coming in around the government and some of the SOE or some of the risks in the portfolio to government's fiscal position. So I, I want to ask you two questions. The mm. first one is, what does a South African default, government default look like? and you know if it had to happen and then the second question i wanted to ask you was can you just take us through your inve your investment thesis in some of the soes that we have in the portfolio we have escom land bank sanral and idc so if you could just take us through how you've approached those those investments so just to to answer your first question i mean i would debt problem it it has been building for a number of years which is a little bit different to what's happened you know around the in the rest of the world because it has been building up you know since 2008 and it actually we went into this with a debt in february just february this year we were set to deliver a budget deficit of 8%. So that was a, an incredible, that was a very high number in what was a more normal economic environment and COVID just blew everything even further out of the water. Now, what happens when we on a trajectory where we set to, we already had 80% debt to GDP, you add in SOEs, you probably get close to 100 already. And we set to add another 15 to 20 percentage points just within the next three years. We are effectively, already in some sort of debt crisis and how do you confront that effectively there's three options you can reform and bring the deficit back in through a combination of growth as well as reduced spending you can restructure your debt so you can say look here the debt is just too too massive to service and it's going to be a, a you know a, a weight on the a big weight on the economy going forward we need to restructure and therefore we need to have a haircut of say 30 or 40 percent the debt was 100 you know, 100 bonds, your bonds were worth 100, now they're worth 60. That's a restructuring, it's very painful, and there's a lot of ramifications. But the easiest way out is generally to through to through inflation, whereby you just let inflation run, and therefore you you uh, higher level. So if you have say 10% inflation, you you reduce the uh, the debt. The debt stays the same in nominal terms, but in real terms, 
you reduce the levels of debt. And we've seen that historically in the 80s in South Africa, where you're running, you know, 15% inflation, and eventually you manage to cure your debt problem because you're just inflating it away. Now, and I think that's the that's the path of least resistance. That seems to be the path that the rest of the world is following. And I think inevitably South Africa will have to follow that path by running higher levels of inflation to reduce that real debt burden. Now, in terms of the SOEs, you know, there's been very little control over SOE spending across the board. They've just been different levels of mismanagement across the, you know, across, you know, SAA is the, the prime, one of the prime examples, but ESCOM, you know, in terms of size has really been a drain on the, on, on the, on the country. We have, in terms of our two positions, uh, bigger positions in SOEs, we've got some uh, position in land bank as well as ESCOM. On the land bank side, the majority of our holding is just over a year. And the, 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 we, we did that on the basis that land bank had been through a reform process. They had Pakamani Radebe in who fixed it. They were rel they're relatively small. I mean, if you look at land bank's book is around 40 billion rand and they've, they in total, which I mean, in the context of an ESCOM, which is receiving 60 billion rand a year, that's, that's very little. Land Bank has had several capital injections over the last two decades, one or two billion. They recently got their three billion rand in. So in terms of being able to support a critical, the critical agricultural industry in South Africa, it hasn't been a big drag on the state. Three billion, uh, you know, uh, just after having received no support over the last two or three years is not significant and is very important for that agricultural industry in South Africa to remain, you know, performing and, and for us to continue producing agriculture. So we viewed it as a critical straight owned entity as which has received consistent level of government support and it was easy for the government to give support. Now, obviously, we've been disappointed by the way Treasury has handled this and allowed the situation to go back and forth. We've had endless meetings with the rest of the industry, ASISA, in order to, and land bank management and Treasury. And we do think that the skills within land bank have diminished, but we do think they're on the right path. And our term to maturity is just over a year on that position. And we think that you know, that position is fine. And, um, you know, when it matures, it's giving us a very attractive yield around 10% yield for, for a year, which if you look at where cash is, it's a phenomenal yield with a very low level of risk with, with the capital injection coming through. We think it's a great return and we're happy with that position. And when it matures, we'll assess it at that point in time. The second one, We've got some ESCOM guarantee debt, which we think is is great. And then we've also got a, a, a bit of a, about a 2% position in unguaranteed debt, but that matures in January just next year, so about four months to go. And we think that given the capital injection of 16 billion, 60 billion every year, we think that's also quite safe and it matures in January and we'll reassess at that point. And there we're getting about an 8% yield in dollars. So that is a great return, a great yield on a four month asset where the government has already pledged the, the money to keep it uh, going forward. And we have seen finally with the appointment of Andre de Reuter, some positive moves coming out of ESCOM. So that's our position. We have very happy. The yields are excellent so over around 10% in RAND terms and shorter term and relatively low risk. Great. Look, we've had some really good questions coming through. Another question that's come through is just around, you know, how the portfolio is positioned for inflation. I, I don't think we have time to go through that now, but obviously um, Rashad has increased his inflation linkers quite significantly in the fund. We also have an RMB, an R, uh, a Royal Buffer King um, convertible debt, which provides a little bit of you know precious metal diversification. 
And then obviously he's also increased his allocation offshore to about 6%. So that's also a defense in, in, in terms of a weakening rand. But look, th- thank you all for, for joining us today. And unfortunately, we, we have come to a close. If you do have any further questions, obviously feel free to, to, to send these through to your business development contact. And we'd be more and more than happy to, ta- to, to answer that. I'd just like to make notes of tomorrow, where at 10 a.m. we'll be joined by Nick Balkan, who will be reporting it to, uh, to us on the performance of the Net Group Investment Stable Fund. But apart from that, look from myself, Rashad, and my colleagues, Net Group Investments, goodbye and take care, and, and we hope you have a, a lovely day. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.